Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. Yes, Halloween is coming up, and yes, I did wear that helmet one year to go trick-or-treating with my kids, and that was a lot of fun, I have to say, but that's not why I came in this morning wearing the helmet. Anyone have an idea of why I might have done that? Anyone reading ahead in Ephesians? Armor of God, well done. Yes, absolutely. It's Armor of God Sunday, which means that we are almost at the end of Paul's letter to the church in the city of Ephesus. The other reason that I wore the helmet is because I wanted to make my wife happy. It's a good principle for living, I find. You see, I haven't gotten a real haircut since the pandemic started, and Judith's not loving my current look. I showed her a picture this week of Joe Thornton, the latest Toronto Maple Leaf. Can I get an amen? amen. Joe Thornton has this crazy, out-of-control beard, and I wanted Judith to see just how bad it could be, how much worse it could be, but that didn't seem to help. So should I submit to her, or should she? Well, I'm going to answer that question with the help of Allison and Justin, and your help too, at the talkback session after the service this morning. So I hope you'll stick around. We're going to spend at least half an hour, maybe more, going over some of the questions that arise from this morning and that may have arisen in previous weeks. As we've come through some pretty controversial parts of this amazing book of the New Testament uh, over the last month. So bring all your questions. You're probably going to have even more based on today's passage. Let's pray now before we dive into Ephesians 6. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you be our teacher this morning? Would you show us that we are people of the light? Would you draw us out of the darkness into a renewed and deeper understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ? Through the ministry of your word, would you make it so? We pray. Amen. So we're going to read from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. And I feel like this should be like somewhere prominent, don't you? Someone went to real effort to tape a mask onto this. If I put it on the mums, will that kill the mums? It'll, yeah, I'm getting a lot of nods. So, uh, you know what? How's that? You probably can't see it, those of you who are watching at home, but it's there. So Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. 
Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Ephesians has brought all of what we've read since back in the spring, it's brought it close to home, at least it has for me. We have issues in our families, in our marriages, in all kinds of relationships, including with people who are an authority over us, people in government, people who have authority over us at work or at school. And we see injustice in the world too. Justin helped us look last week at the issue of slavery, which is probably the most terrible example of the abuse of power we see going on in the world. All of this Paul has covered recently in Ephesians, and none of this is what God intended for us. He wants us to enjoy peace and harmony in our relationships and in society, but we struggle all the time anyway, and we see brokenness all around us. It's hard to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, as he urges us to do, especially when the mutuality often isn't there in the relationships where we know we should be doing that, but it's hard. And Paul experiences all of that as well. It was just as true for Christians in the city of Ephesus as it is for us today. But then right here in verse 10, it seems like he abruptly changes track. After focusing on our ordinary everyday lives and all these problems we face, Paul suddenly comes out with this. He writes, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That is quite the change of pace. But maybe Paul hasn't gone off in a completely new direction. Maybe this is the flip side or, or even a deeper view of what he's been talking about all along. He says the spiritual at its, he says the conflict at its core is spiritual, that the true source of the unhappiness, the discontent that we sometimes feel is not your boss, it's not your friend who has let you down, it's not that family member who you can't get along with, it's the dark powers, it's the spiritual forces of evil in the universe. And so Paul wants to tell us three things this morning. First of all, who we're fighting against. Secondly, what weapons we have at our disposal. And third, how we can use them. So first of all, who we're fighting against. And then the armor, the weapons, how we can get into the battle and have a chance. And then thirdly, how we deploy them. So first of all, who are we fighting against? Well, C.S. Lewis still has the best summary of what this looks like, I think. He warns us in the Screwtape letters that we can make two mistakes when it comes to the devil, when it comes to these evil forces that Paul writes about. First of all, we can disbelieve in the devil's existence, or we can believe and feel an excessive interest in him. The Ephesians had no trouble believing in evil spiritual forces. All you have to do is open up the book of Acts to chapter 19 and read about Paul's experience in the city of Ephesus to get a good sense of that. 
But in our modern Western world, we don't believe in the devil. After all, we're scientific people. We're past that, aren't we? But here's a question. Would we know where to begin to even look for the devil if we wanted to do a research project on him? Tony Campolo says the devil is the one appearing in movies, telling us romantic love and sexual pleasure are the keys to our fulfillment. He's the one behind an economic system that teaches us money is the key to success and happiness. He's the one sitting in the psychologist's chair offering ultimate hope in life apart from God. He's the one teaching from our pulpits that life is about you, about your satisfaction, that God wants to make you rich, that hell is not real, and that the standards of the Bible are for a different time and place and don't apply to us today. I think that's pretty helpful as we try to discern these things. Our culture assumes that everything has a natural explanation, but science in the end cannot help us with the biggest and most important questions of life, such as around the existence of God or of the devil. And the church should know better. Scripture takes the devil seriously and so should we. There is evil in the world, and as Christians, we are called to resist it. But we're also called first to focus on Christ. Some Christians give the devil too much credit and too much attention. We are responsible for our own actions. The devil does not make us do it. He can only tempt and lie. He does that powerfully, but he is not the one who has won the victory. In Ephesians 2, earlier in this letter, Paul lays this whole thing out for us. He says, at the beginning of that chapter, he says, As for you, you were dead in your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit now at work in those who are disobedient. And so he points to, first of all, our sinful nature, secondly, the world and its influence on us, and finally, the devil and his schemes. Like the angels, we can obey or disobey God. Some of the angels fell into darkness, and Satan led them there. Paul refers in this passage to different powers and forces. But most of all, he wants us to live as children of the light, to stand firm in our identity in Christ. In verse 10, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So it's not our strength we're talking about. You ever heard someone say, God helps those who help themselves? Did you know that 68% of Bible-believing North American Christians believe that's in Scripture, that Jesus himself said that? He didn't. That's a spirit of self-reliance that reflects the world around us. It is not the message of Christ. And, and if we buy into that, if we think that we can make it on our own, then we can have it our way, that we can pursue independence, that that's what life is all about, we are going to be incredibly exposed to the schemes of the devil. So where do you feel strong right now? Where are you self-sufficient in your life at the moment? Because that's actually where you're weakest. That's where you are least likely to depend on God. And trust me, you are no match for Satan. A related question, where do you feel 
the weakest right now. Wherever that is, wherever you're struggling the most, having the hardest time, that's an invitation to trust in God. And that's actually where you can be strongest because it sets you up to wait on the Lord. Paul says all the way through Ephesians that God's power is available for us and will do more than we can ask or imagine. That's where we need to be standing, not off on our own trying to make it work, but in his power, in his mighty strength. So the first thing is to know who we're fighting. The second thing is to see how God has equipped us. He gives us the resources we need for the fight. Some of us may not have looked at this passage since Sunday school, but in spite of the cheesiness that's, I think, associated with this passage, and I modeled that for you perfectly by coming in with, should I pick it up again, the helmet with the face mask? I think this is really a passage for adults, most of all, not just for kids. When we unpack the armor of God, we see that it's really about who we are in Christ. It gets to the very core issues of Christian identity. It's how the Lord prepares us and protects us to fight the enemy. So every day when we go out into the world, every day when you look in the mirror and get ready for what is to come, we begin to fight against fear, against doubt, against anxiety, temptation, our selfishness in relation to other people, and on the list goes. The armor of God shows us practical ways that we can protect ourselves daily so the Satan's arrows do not harm us. The first thing we come across here is the belt of truth. We all have a way to determine what's right in our lives. For some of you, it's the opinion of people around you. For others of you, you don't really care what people think. You know what's right for you. Paul is saying that you may be more deceived than you realize. And the only way to escape the deception of the enemy is to let the word of God interpret reality for you. From the very beginning, from the start of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, Satan's strategy has been to get people to dis disregard God's word. His first question in the garden was, did God really say that? So he's going to try to get you to do one of two things. First of all, to doubt God's word, or second of all, to neglect it. Into that struggle, Jesus says, I am the truth. To know me is to know truth. And to not know me is to be totally deceived about life. And Paul repeats that in Ephesians 4, 21. He says the truth is in a person, and that is Jesus. In Jesus, you see the truth about yourself, that you were created for God, and that's why nothing in the world is ever going to be able to satisfy you, because you were created to know him and to love him alone. And in the cross of Jesus, we see that we are sinners who have separated ourselves from God and who stand condemned. And in that same cross, you see the truth about God that wins out in the end, that he loved us so much that he took the punishment for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Next comes the breastplate of righteousness. This is a, a core protection that identity in Christ provides us. 
It comes from knowing that God accepts me and that I'm right with him thanks to Jesus and that nothing can ever come between me and him and his love. You can think of the breastplate and its position on your body, on a soldier's body. It protects the vital organs and it shows us good in our lives by the power of Christ living in us. And Satan uses the uncovered parts of our lives to attack us. The bad habits you have, a lack of self-control, areas of pride, unhealthy relationships. And one of the strategies of the accuser, and that's literally what devil means, is to call into question our status before God as righteous. We, when we are being honest, at a deep level, I think, have a hard time believing that. And so Paul, throughout this letter and throughout the New Testament, is constantly reassuring us that when we're in Christ, and that's the refrain we've seen in Ephesians from the beginning, that we are in Christ. When we are in Christ, we are saints, is the old word for it. We are the holy ones of God. Do we believe it? Because as we do, as the Spirit allows that to change us from the inside out, we find the greatest freedom we never could have imagined. And so we're secure because we know that we're forgiven, we're loved by God, we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And from that place of security, we're sent out to seek the lost, to seek justice for those who are oppressed. And, and that's where the next piece of armor comes in. Our feet are fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Here's one example of that. For some of us, tomorrow, our feet will take us to work or to school. Maybe they will take us to a room in our home where we will mine doing those things. We're still there, though. Are we ready to share the gospel as part of that? That doesn't mean we're going to talk about Jesus all day long with our coworkers, but it has everything to do with peace. Many workplaces have a culture of complaint and criticism that can lead to resentment, and that kind of spreads like, like a virus. Are we negative about our boss or about those who work with us or those who work for us? Do we go along with the crowd when it comes to gossip or... Rather, do we speak the truth in love when we hear people being slandered or put down? You can make peace at work or in your classes if you're a student by watching what you say, by not complaining. And even the virtual workplace can be a battleground like that. So be prepared to bring a culture of peace instead of criticism into your work. You can think about a Zoom call, the temptation, sometimes you feel, especially when you're getting bored or just tired of it, is to send a text to someone complaining, to send a private chat message making a snide comment. When we have the peace of Jesus in our hearts, we share that peace, we practice self-control, and the gospel shines through. Another example of having our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace would be the upcoming U.S. election. How many more weeks do we have for that? Is it three? Not even three. This is an election that is divisive like no other, even for us as Canadians. Can you, in your online conversations, 
in social media, with friends, be someone who brings people together rather than wanting to get the last word, wanting to make your opinion heard. Can you hold your tongue and try to keep communities from falling apart? Next, the shield of faith, which is the only defensive item on this list, and it helps us to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one we read. And those are the accusations of the devil. He tells us all kinds of things that we're tempted to believe, that there's no hope, that we'll never be good enough, that we should be afraid, that our anxiety is based in reality. And we can resist the devil by recognizing that these thoughts are not from God. When pictures or words or particular fears come to mind, we can call on the name of Jesus to resist them. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we should take every captive, every thought captive to Christ and make it obedient to him. And sometimes we need help to do that. Someone on our staff team this week told the story of a friend of theirs who whenever she would get down on herself, this friend would ask her, who's telling you that? Whenever she would be disappointed in herself, beating up on herself for some mistake or something that had not gone well, her friend would ask again, who's telling you that? And that question for her was like a shaft of light revealing the darts of the devil. If you're struggling with something, have you considered that it might not just be your fault? Maybe you think you didn't work hard enough. Maybe you're blaming yourself for it in some way. But Paul says there's something darker and more spiritual going on behind the surface appearance of that struggle in your life. The devil is committed to feeding you lies and loading you up with guilt so that you can't even move, so that you're paralyzed and you will never be able to ask for help. What you need is a shield wall. Have you seen these shield walls? The Romans did it. Maybe you've watched a movie like Gladiator where these giant shields come together and form this wall through which attackers are really going to have a hard time getting through. All of us need a shield wall. We can't do it on our own. We need to come together with other believers who can join their shield to yours and surround you and protect you and hold you up in the times when you feel like you're barely going to make it through the day. So what are you facing right now in your family, in your friendships, in your marriage, at work, with your health? Maybe it feels like your life is out of control, or maybe you're just tired of it all, tired of this pandemic, among other things. Whatever your circumstances, the devil is guaranteed to lie to you about where it's going to end up. He'll get you to blame yourself or someone else. He'll tell you nothing will ever change. And in response, you can hold up the shield of faith and remember that God is a mighty fortress, our refuge and our strength in times of trouble. The helmet of salvation, I'm going to pick it up at this point. There it is again. The helmet of salvation gives us the security that we are in Christ forever. Some of us are people pleasers. I'm definitely one of those. We really want other people to like us, and we work hard for success and to please others. We crave our parents' approval, even if they're gone. That maybe haunts us. We need people to think highly of us. 
to be saved, to put on this salvation, this helmet of salvation, is to know what Paul says in Ephesians 2, later in what I mentioned earlier on. He says that God is so rich in mercy and loved us so much that even though we were dead in our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Jesus. So it's not just a helmet. It's a crown also. It's who you are. Your salvation is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The last piece of armor that Paul mentions is a sword. So it's a weapon, in fact. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul says elsewhere that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But the Spirit isn't going to cut through all of the confusion and the complacency we feel unless we're actually reading the Bible. So how does the Bible show up in your life and in your family's life? If you're here today, whether you're in this room with us or you're watching online, I hope that you've come anticipating that the Holy Spirit would take all of these words we read in the Bible and apply them to your life as encouragement and as correction, that things could and will change. But you know, listening to God's word once a week in a worship service isn't enough. If we're going to fight this battle daily, we need to be prepared daily. So here's a challenge for you this week. Whether you are in that habit, whether you have a devotional practice of reading scripture each day, or whether you're not, maybe that is something you haven't done, maybe you've never done it, I want to challenge you to read the whole book of Ephesians this week. Next Sunday, we're going to be looking back over all six chapters, and six chapters sets you up nicely to read one chapter a day until next Sunday, and see what happens as you do that. See what God teaches you through that. See the difference that that makes as you prayerfully take that in. God honors that. God comes alongside you in that. So that's the full armor of God. How do we get up and put it on? How do we activate these weapons? Because they're real, but they're not literal. Well, Paul points to two things. He says, prayer is foundational and also the community of the church. The first thing is that prayer is such a non-negotiable in the Christian life. It's not the seventh piece of armor. It's not another item on this list. It encompasses it all. In verse 18, Paul says that we should pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. We should always keep on praying for all of God's people. He says all, actually five times in that verse. Paul wants us to understand and to respond. He wants the practice of prayer to become like second nature to us. He wants it to nurture in us an awareness of God so that we are not tempted to forget, often willingly, that God is with us. He wants us to have an ease at slipping into and out of prayer. That's one of the things I really appreciate about Courtright, is that you will find, if you spend any time around our church community, that people will pray with you. They will pray with you 
over coffee, but when we get back to having coffee on Sunday mornings, they will pray with you on the phone. They will pray and willingly pray for whatever it is that you need prayer for. And you can join with a prayer minister. If that's something you haven't experienced, I want to encourage you to take advantage of the opportunity to do that after a service. As we pray, we become more alert to Jesus and to where the Holy Spirit is leading us and is active in our lives. Let me say that again. To pray is to wake up, it's to watch, it's to pay attention, it's to move into the light. I was talking to my son Callum on the phone the other day. He's away this year for the first time. And I shared with him that I was anxious about something that I was facing. And without pausing, he said, quite simply, how much have you prayed about it? And he said, I don't mean token prayer, but sustained prayer. And he went on to tell me that he has prayed more in the past month than maybe in his whole life. And he said that when you pray for longer periods of time, he's finding, when you pray for a couple of hours, it's so different from praying for a few minutes, from bringing a list of things you need to God. You get beyond that me-centered prayer. You stop telling God what to do, what your expectations of him are, and you start to listen. You start to have a mind that is changed into his likeness. Now, you might think you don't have time for that. More important than that in your life right now. The other way we put on the armor of God is by participating in this shield wall I talked about earlier. One shield is good, a hundred shields so much stronger. If we're going to really pray for each other, and Paul urges us to do that, it's as if he's saying, you can forget all this armor if you're not praying. It's just going to sit over there in the corner. If we're really going to pray for each other, we need to get to know each other. This is such an important way that we move out of the darkness of our solitary lives and into the light of who we are together in Christ. Now, some of us have grown up in the church and we're familiar with that awkward moment. You're in a group, you're in a circle, and someone says, let's share prayer requests. You know what I'm talking about. At that point, you can fake it or you can take the risk of being vulnerable with the people you're with. And Paul does exactly that. He models that for us really here in verses 19 and 20. When he asks the Ephesian Christians to pray for him to be fearless, I'd never seen this before until recently, but what he's asking, what he's, what he's admitting to them is that he's afraid. The Apostle Paul, this giant of our faith, is saying, I need your help. I can't do this alone. My prayer for you and for all of us who are part of the Courtright community is that you will have a place to go to. You will have a friend. You can be with a group you're a part of who really know what you're going through and how to pray for you. We're afraid of getting close to each other, aren't we? The devil plays on those fears and draws our attention not only to our mistakes, but to the mistakes that others have made. And soon we're blaming people. We're well off track. The devil lies to us, tells us we're not good enough, and reminds us of all the shortcomings of the church and other Christians and says, why bother? Why bother with this church thing? It's boring. What is it doing for you, really? As if it was news that Christians have problems. Read the New Testament. And yet we fight the good fight. 
But this armor of God can never be triumphalistic. It's never about our victory. We come into the battle, if we enter it at all, admitting that we're broken, that we're sinners who need a Savior. But we're in this together as the church of Christ by the grace of God. And that's how Paul ends this letter, with the good news of the grace of Jesus. The mystery of the gospel is Paul's focus, he says in verse 19. And having started his letter with grace and peace, Paul closes with peace and grace. And you can read on to the very end if you've got your Bible open. And we'll read that together next week. It's only right that grace should get the final word. The mystery of God's grace in Jesus Christ is simply how incredible it is that God would save us by grace alone. That even though we are these self-centered people, alienated from God and from one another, complacent in our sin, really easy prey for the devil a lot of the time, and yet God sent his son to die for us. Are you amazed by God's grace in that? If you look to Jesus and you are astounded by all he has done and who he is, then find your place among his people. That's what he's calling you to today. Let them, let him through them help you put on the full armor of God. Pray with them and for them. Let the Spirit fill you and guide you. And you will find yourself, your true self, in Jesus Christ together as we are his church. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you want the best for us. We often feel like we can't trust other people, and at the, at the root of that is a lack of trust in you. We're not sure that you're on our side at times. We want to pursue our own will. Lord, I pray that, that you would show us more and more as we've reflected on Ephesians and as together we're trying to build a community that has you at its core here at Courtright. Would you show us who we are in your son Jesus? Thank you for who you are and all you've done for us, we pray. Amen.